I always like to take a moment and say hello to every location gathered across Montana, Portland, Oregon, Salt Lake City, Utah, Church Online, Fresh Life Television. We're glad to be with you in this moment uh, with Jesus together. If you have a Bible, uh, join me in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm calling this message the Christmas table. And I wish I could just illustrate it by showing you it. Oh, here we go. This will work. And uh, in 2 Samuel 9, uh, we find our text. Um, you know, the table speaks of the family. I think, like nothing else, the table speaks about what a family should be. Tragically, it's kind of being like replaced with the television as like the, the place that the family gathers around. But really, the heart of the home is, is the dinner table. It's, the, it's that breakfast table. It's, it's, it's where you gather. It's where you, you eat and spend time together. Um, they say Americans are spending less and less time at the dinner table. I think it used to be 90 minutes would be the meal. Now it's like 12 to 17 minutes on average. Everyone just kind of sits down and and then and then it's you know the TV's on in many households. Uh, this isn't like an Amish trip. I'm not trying to get you to like you know get your aluminum foil hat on and you know throw your television away. But I think we're losing something in the elimination and the minimization of the, the precious moments just gathered around the, the table, looking into you know, each other's eyes, lighting some candles. We've been on a kick last year or so where we've been just consciously stepping up the amounts of evenings we spend with candlelight and low lighting, partially because I'm a vampire. I don't like any light coming in. I mean, I just, I just, I like everything low, low, low and some jazz music on and just the, the, the chillness that comes uh, from, from having screens turned off, no phones at the table and just, just going old school a little bit. And, um, you know, they say we're as a culture, not only eating fewer meals together, spending less time together, but it's happening later in the evening. It used to be like 5.30 p.m. on average or something, but now it's like closer to like 8 p.m., 7.57 or so that the average family kind of gets a, gets a meal and once soccer is done and once this is done and multiple jobs and, and, and sometimes multiple homes that the child splits time back and forth between. And uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that uh, are positive things that increase when you spend more time at the table. You, kids do better in school. Uh, there's lower rates of obesity and a whole bunch of other things that are, are good for you that just come from being at the table. So really, can we agree that the table speaks of what the family should be, just the heart of the home, and uh, the Christmas story is all about family. So Christmas and table. Christmas is God inviting you and inviting me into the family. Christmas is God doing everything necessary for us to have a seat pulled up at his table. That's what we lost in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, we, we forfeited the right. We, we who used to walk with God in the cool of the day, we who used to just enjoy the presence of God right there, face to face, that which was lost, Christmas seeks to return. And the promise for Christmas was given. The, the first initial Christmas story announcement was Genesis 3, where God promised to crush the head of the serpent and to restore all that had been taken away from us for paradise to be once again regained so we could once more sit at the Christmas table. I've had you turn to 2 Samuel 9. And before we begin reading the, the passage, let me just do a quick uh, little bit of setup that will help you. I think, you know, a uh, cast of characters, having a working knowledge of the characters you're about to, to look at, uh, I think will cause the power of these words to become even more poignant. 
Uh, we have three principal actors who we meet in the first verse. Let's just read that, and then we'll set it all up. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We're just having a Bible study here. Is that cool? I love having a time talking about scripture with my girls at the table and Lennox. He doesn't contribute much, um, <laughs> but he's cute, right? So we, we let him stay. And um, t- Tabasco, our dog, just every, every time we eat, he just, just laps, just hoping, hoping, and they usually don't disappoint. Something drops from the table. <laughs> he just gets it. So uh, we're here in, in 2 Samuel 9, and we just met three people. We met Saul, we met David, and we met Jonathan. Who are they? Saul, you probably know, is, was the first king of Israel. And his son is Jonathan. And David is Jonathan's best friend, Saul's son-in-law, and the person who is going to be the next king of Israel. Saul did not like that at all. In his mind, Saul saw his son sitting on the throne after him. He wanted uh, the one after that to be related to him and the one after that to be related to him. In his mind, what was he thinking? Dynasty. Dynasty. And that was what could have happened, what would have happened, had Saul not forfeited the right to be a part of all of this by disobeying God at every turn. So God eventually told Saul, it was tough for him to hear, uh, the kingdom has been torn from your hands by your own doing, and it's going to be given to someone else, someone who's better than you. Who did God intend? Well, he was a little kid taking care of sheep who his dad didn't even think enough of to invite to the dinner table when the prophet came to town to pick a new king. And that's because God doesn't see things like man sees them. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I came to tell you here, if you've been passed over and excluded and not counted by people in this world, God sees you, he values you, he loves you, he knows you, he's got a plan for your life. <laughs> Ask David, this, this little runt kid, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and he got anointed to be the next king. Well, from that moment forward, God began to work in David's life in ways where he began to grow in prominence, grow in favor, made wise decisions. There was a very notable incident with a very tall guy named Goliath who David uh, trusted God, ran out into the battlefield and took out. And uh, because of that, he secured a high-level position in, in Saul's military, and he only proved himself more capable, more able. And Saul, as God began to bless David, began to grow jealous of David. Saul was just so full of insecurity and racked by jealousy that he began to, to scheme how to get rid of David. But you can't keep a good man down. You can't keep God's man down. So even as David's life got more difficult, God began to use him in more incredible ways and in more incredible ways. And soon he, uh, even though Saul tried to kill him by sending him to fight an impossible battle, uh, David defeated the, uh, the, the huge contingency of troops that came against him. And, and because of that, he got to become Saul's daughter, uh, marry Saul's daughter and become uh, son-in-law to, to King Saul. And, and uh, so it just got more complicated because Saul could not kill David no matter what he did. You should see some of your faces right now. You're like, isn't this supposed to be like a Christmas sermon? <laughs> Where's the wise men? 2 Samuel 9. There's no shepherds here. Well, there's still time for you to leave and go to a church where they're preaching Luke too. But I'm, I'm, if you'll stay with me, I promise you we're going we're gonna to see this thing is Christmas through and through. All right? It's not Hallmark card Christmas. 
but it's actual Christmas. It's what Christmas actually addresses, and that's called the human condition and the problems that plague us deep down. You're not going to get three points in a poem, and there's not going to be a lot of rum-pa-pum-pum, and this text does not taste like eggnog at first blush, but I'm telling you, it deep down is, is got Christmas all over. All right, so now you kind of are familiar with, with Saul. You understand who David is. Uh, Jonathan brought complexity to this whole story because him and David became best friends. Now, that's awkward. When Saul wants Jonathan to be king, God has made it clear David's going to be king. And Jonathan, he sides with David. He's like, God, I see the God's hands on your life. I'm not the guy for king. Now, Saul's like, no, you're going to be king. And parents, can we just time out for a sec? Parents, it is an absolute train wreck to try and push your dreams onto your children, to, to live vicariously through them to insist they follow in the family business, to, to insist that, that they play football because you played football. They go to your alma mater because that's where you, or, or because you didn't do something. They have to do it because you're going to make sure they get the advantages that you didn't get. So they're going to have to do this. Let me just tell you, the only dream you should be encouraging your children to follow is God's. The only footsteps they should be following in is Jesus's, not your footsteps. Don't push them to your dreams. Push them to God's dreams. Help encourage them to hear the voice of God. Can I get an amen in the house? of God on a Christmas Eve where y'all are just looking at me while I'm preaching so good from a dinner table. All right. So Saul insists Jonathan become king. Jonathan's like, God's hands on David's life. God will take care of me. I'm just, I want what God wants for me. So Saul gets so mad while Jonathan's defending David that Saul tries to kill Jonathan so he can become king. Did, does anybody else see the logic breaking down in all this? I'm going to kill you so you can be, how's that going to work if I'm dead, dad? Here, listen, sin makes you stupid. So what he's doing doesn't make any sense. And he's clouded. His judgment is not all there. And so uh, Jonathan and David, their friendship survives. And Jonathan makes David promise. Promise me one day when you're king, you'll be kind to my family. Promise me. I know my dad's crazy. He's trying to kill you. He's wild. But, but promise me when you're king that you'll be a good man. You'll look after my family. And David says, you'll be looking after your family. What are you talking about? He said, no, no, promise me you'll look after my family when I'm gone. And he said it with the distant look in his eye of, of a person who kind of senses they're not long for this earth. It became an emotional moment, choked up. David says, of course, I'll take care of your family. Promise me, I promise you. Well, from that moment forward, David and Jonathan, we, we don't know of them ever seeing each other again because Jonathan had to go, David had to go on the run. And uh, Saul was chasing him around for a decade, for over 10 years, David lived in caves. Oh, by the way, in those caves, he wrote almost all of the book of Psalms. So some of the most precious things can come out of your darkest days because God is with you and he's near to the brokenhearted. So just take heart if life's hard for you right now. Let it become a praise. Let it become something precious. Let it become something powerful. Think about the, the first book that I wrote, Eyes Through the Eyes of a Lion, that Jen and I had the chance to release to the world. It was written out of the most difficult circumstances. It was written out of the journal entries of our darkest days of our lives, many of them that came right after a Christmas season. And, and so just take heart if you're going through something hard. We have the book of Psalms because David went through a really difficult period, 10 years of horrors. So um, we don't know that him and Jonathan ever saw each other again. Eventually, Jonathan died and Saul died. And that brings us up to speed here, where David, look at it again, verse 1, woke up one day and said, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive, thinking of that promise he made, anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so... I want to show God's kindness to them. 
Ziba replied, yeah, actually, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, the Ziba, to- Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Now we're introduced to our fourth character. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son who David never knew. You're like, wait, he's his best friend. How did he not know him? He was born after David was already living in a cave. He couldn't get on Instagram to see the epic shot that Jonathan posted from the hospital, right? He, he had no awareness of this kid's existence. His name was Mephibosheth. I keep wanting him to call him Meshibosheth. It's not his name. Let's just call him Phoebe. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Phoebe. And Phoebe replied, I'm your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I'll explain in a minute why he said that. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. So Phoebe showed, bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson, <coughs> excuse me, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Parenthetically, we're told, just in case it's helpful information, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And that's just way too many kids, really. Verse 11, Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I'm your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. He also had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. Amazing reversal of fortune here. And Mephibosheth, check it out, who was crippled in both feet. From that moment forward, what did he do? He lived in Jerusalem, and he ate regularly at the king's table. Now, this doesn't, like I said, seem like a Christmas story, but let me just tell you something. This is exactly what we need to understand if we're to go into Christmas with the proper frame of mind. Ready? You and I are Mephibosheth. You and I are Mephibosheth. What what do I mean? Five things. Jot them down. Number one, for Mephibosheth, life hadn't gone according to plan. And if we're to understand Christmas and the power of the story of Jesus coming to this world, it's because like Mephibosheth, our lives haven't gone according to plan, have they? Well, maybe you were young and you charted out what it was going to look like to be 20, to be 30, to be 40. Kids, you know, what do you want to be one day? Astronaut, pilot, president. And we look down one day and we, we ask the question, when did we give up on our dreams? Or we had this image of what marriage was going to look like. And divorce wasn't in the picture that we painted, was it? And the difficulty of losing a parent that maybe you weren't on speaking terms with at the time. And just and maybe you're 17 and you got mixed up with the wrong crew. And one night, things got a little out of control. Now you got a criminal record. Or you got thrown out of college. 
couple bad decisions added together, and it can get real serious real quick. Hanging out with some friends, and someone wasn't buckled up, and someone had a few drinks, and now so, this guy got thrown out of the window, and now you know, you're in a hospital and trying to call this guy's parents to tell him life doesn't always go according to plan. I mean, it's fine to plan. Just remember what Mike Tyson said. It's always nice when you can work a casual Tyson quote on Christmas Eve. He says, fine to make a plan. Everyone's got a plan, but then you get punched in the mouth. How do you adapt when, when life savagely punches you on the jaw? Well, Mephibosheth, man, his life didn't go according to plan. He was five years old, five years old when his father died. Can you imagine? Some of you can. You lost your, one of your parents very young. All of a sudden, life got real cruel, real difficult. Five years old, his dad died. Same day, his grandfather died. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting because his grandfather was King Saul. So imagine how different life became overnight. I, I imagine Mephibosheth, his week being very regimented. I mean, uh, four or five, you know, as he's a young, the young prince. He's, he's, he's second in line to, to be king of Israel. And, um, you know, horseback riding at two, archery at four, you know, learning ancient hieroglyphics, you know, and then the British tutor, how could he be British? Just go with me. Like, in my imagination, he's got a cheeky British, you know, butler who comes in and, you know, young master, you know, like, like, like his name's Alfred probably, right? And, and um, he's, 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 you know, helping him. And, but the day Saul died, it was a regime change. The dynastic succession was not going to occur. Jonathan was not going to be king, and Mephibosheth was not going to be king. Now there's a whole new sheriff in town. You know, in America, it's even kind of awkward how, how, how quickly stuff changes once the new president takes office. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the background specials they do on it. All, all the inauguration and a million people, that, that to me is not that interesting. What's more interesting to me is like the fact that they change out the White House at the exact same time the swearing-in ceremony occurs. First family wakes up, true story, in the White House that day, they're having their French toast. It's their White House. All their clothes are hanging in the closet. They haven't started packing. Everything's just as it has been for the last four or eight years. They could go down to the bowling alley, the Truman bowling alley in the basement, throw a few. You know, they could, they could go to the Rose Garden, Cousin Roses. It's their Rose Garden. They could go to the White House indoor swimming pool and swim a few laps, toss a few baskets. And then they, it's time to go to this, this swearing in where the new president's going to take, take his oath of office. And and so they get loaded up and they go. And the moment they leave that, that premise, instantly people come in and start folding up all their clothes, packing them all up, taking all the furniture out that's theirs that they had brought in. And, and anything that they, they got brought out of the White House storage vault gets put back to storage vault if the new family didn't pick it. The first lady and the first the president had picked everything out ahead of time, what's going to be there. And, but they didn't do any of the changeover till they left the facility. And now they're painting rooms, tearing off and reinstalling wallpaper. And the trucks that have been idling beside the gate pull in. They're unloading all the stuff of the new family. So true story, once the outgoing president waves off the old one as he gets on Marine One, and it's like, don't call, don't write. Right? <laughs> if, we, if we find any of your crap, we'll mail it to you. And, and it's like, you're gone. You're, bye-bye. That Marine One helicopter takes the outgoing first family over the White House one last time. But then off they go. It's not their home anymore. It's, they can't just cruise up to the, to the White House. They don't live there anymore. It's not their house anymore. And I'm sure some of them are pretty happy about that, right? You see the before and after photos? It's like the sucking of the life out of them coming out of that thing. It's crazy. It's like the machine and princess bride they hook Wesley up to. It's not to 50, right? 
Anyhow, Mephibosheth woke up somewhere in the fifth year of his life, and the palace was his house. And that was his room. And that was where he did his archery lessons. And that was his cheeky British butler named Alfred. And then when the, he probably, kids, kids pick up on stuff. They can sense how the, how the marriage is doing. They understand. You, you can watch your kids key in on when you're having a fight. You know, mommy and dad are just talking. They're like, yeah, we know it's not that. Um, and he could tell that something wasn't right. And what was being communicated all through the palace, the king is dead. The king's son is dead. Jonathan is dead. David is being crowned king. Everything was about to change for this young man. New home, no dad. We don't know anything about his mom. She's never mentioned. We don't, we don't know anything whether she's alive or not. But, but life didn't go according to plan. There's a second reason why we're like Mephibosheth and we need to own up to that this Christmas to receive the power of the message is, is this. Second thing is people in his life that he trusted let him down. So there people in your life that you've looked to that said they'd be there, weren't there. Said they'd be faithful to you through thick and thin, then they betrayed you. <laughs> Walked out on you. They said till, till death do us part. Or what, they, what they meant was till death do us part or till something hotter and younger comes along or till I don't feel like honoring the covenant I made. We looked at people, we, tr- we trusted them. We trusted that our parents would stay married. We trusted that, that this person in our life we respected wouldn't molest us when we were 11. But we've trusted people who have let us down. Mephibosheth didn't have a dad anymore. What did he have? He had a, a nanny. He had a nurse, the Bible describes her as. And we're given some details. He's five years old. Look at it. 2 Samuel 4, 4. This is the day his dad died. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. How did that happen, you're wondering? Here we go. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Jonathan and Saul had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him, and he became crippled. There was a panic among all the household staff that worked for Saul, and the fear was, we're going to be rounded up and killed. So this nurse, this nanny, she grabs the little baby boy, five years old, and she's running. But at some point, she just drops him in her hurry to be out of there. You know, maybe at first she's like, oh, I need her. My instincts were to take care of him. That was my job. But then she's realizing, wait a minute. He's slowing me down, A. And B, I don't have a job anymore. And my connection to this child actually hurts me because he carries the royal blood in him. And so it doesn't tell us that she did it overtly, but all, all it tells us is she fell, she stumbled, she dropped him. And man, I've carried kids. Daisy, come up here real quick. Let me help, help me out with this little part of the sermon. Let me just tell you something. I, I got to have help, and this is a perfect way to do it. If I, everybody say hi to Daisy. Hi, Daisy. Daisy. If you're in my arms, and you're seven, so you're a little older than five, but I'm telling you something. If I fall down holding you in my arms, do you think I'm going to fall and fall on top of you, or I'm going to fall where you land on top of me? What do you think? I don't know. I tell you exactly what I do. If I'm tripping and falling, I'm not going to fall on top of you. I'm going to turn and let you land on daddy's big old belly like a soft pillow. That's my plan. Thanks for being part of the sermon. I love you. Let's hear it for Daisy, everybody. I mean, any parent knows. I mean, that's, that's what you do. You, you, you shift, you pivot. You don't let this child fall 
she not only let him fall, but the fall was bad enough that he either broke his back or he broke both of his legs. It takes some force for a five-year-old to have broken legs or a broken back. But whatever the case, this woman who he, he she, she now was the only loving face he knew of in his life. She let him down. You know, maybe she was amazing and maybe it was a total accident. I'm misreading it. And they fell into a big ravine off a staircase and I'm going to get to heaven. She's going to be giving me a dirty look for bad mouthing her at church. But, <laughs> but all I know is while she was in, while he was in her charge, he fell. And that's on her because she was there to take care of him. But, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the other side of the coin. We've all trusted people that have let us down, but we've all let people down who trusted us too. That's on me. There's things I've done that have let people down. There's ways I haven't lived out my witness like I should that's, that's hurt the name of Jesus, right? So, so, so we've all fallen, and we've all let other people fall. And that's because, guess what? We all have fallen. <laughs> Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that explains why we've been hurt. And that explains why we've hurt other people because we've fallen. Now, here's, here's where it gets real serious. The third reason we're like Mephibosheth is because he was in danger and he had no way to run. The king could easily be seeking him to come into the palace on this day. Now, years have gone by. He's probably in his 20s, maybe even as old as 30, because he has his own son now. He's been living in Lodabar. David never knew about it. David forgot about his promise. He's been expanding the empire. He's been doing all these things. Then one day he wakes up and he remembers his promise he made to Jonathan. And he realizes, I, haven't, I don't know anybody uh, from, from Saul's family. So look it up. Is there anyone related to Saul? Now, everybody assumes, guaranteed, everybody who hears this happening assumes Game of Thrones shenanigans are going down. This is Lord of the Rings. This is, I don't want a blood, someone carrying the blood of Saul, who five generations from now could count, mount a, a coup and overthrow the house of David and raise up the standard and flag of, of Saul. So everybody assumes, including Mephibosheth, that he's going to be brought in and be executed. They round him up in Lodabar, a place that means no pasture. So he was living in a remote, rural, let's have a quick drink of water real quick. A little tickle in my throat. <clears> throat> it's been kind of bugging me all Christmas, so just talk amongst yourselves for a second. <laughs> so uh, Mephibosheth gets brought in, and he assumes he's about to be executed. That's why the first thing David had to speak to him was what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And where have I heard that before? Where, where have I heard? Here's David, a man from Bethlehem, saying, don't be afraid. Oh, that's right, Luke 2. You'll get your Luke 2. Now you're going to go home happy. All right, look at this. It says, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They, like Mephibosheth, were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Say it with me. Don't be afraid, for I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Isn't it amazing that this story that we're looking at echoes the greatest story ever told, as this person who was in great danger, had nowhere to run, finds mercy at the hands of a good king. Look at this next point, who wanted to show him kindness. Why are we like Mephibosheth? Because there was a good king who wanted to show him kindness. There was no reason to. He didn't have to. I mean, think about it. Uh, the normal thing to do in the ancient world would be to consolidate your power and to eliminate any rival for Excuse me, king. 
We too are in danger. We're in danger because we're all sinners who have fallen and because we're all moving closer every day to the day that we will die. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You've never stopped getting closer to the day of your death from the moment you were born. You're like, no, not me. I diffuse essential oils. You're going to die smelling better than us. Um, (laughs) Not me. I eat kale and tofu. You're going to die with a bad taste in your mouth, but you're still going to die, right? Uh, I, I say, if I live a little bit less, but I eat bacon, that's, that's better. That's, 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 that's really good. Um, so our, our new favorite thing is bacon wrapped around dates with a little bit of cheese in there on a toothpick. That is happiness as long. I'm planning that. I'm just, Jenny, that's what I want for dinner. I've, I've preached six times already. I deserve some bacon on a toothpick. You know what I'm saying? Um, so so here, here's, here's the truth, though. We're all moving closer to death. And what's going to happen when we die? Our soul's going to go stand before God. You are not a body. You have a body. You are a soul. And when you leave your body, your soul goes to stand before God, and it's a judgment. And the judgment, according to Jesus, is between heaven and hell. Those are the only two options. And why should we listen to Jesus? There's so many prophets, so many gurus, so many people who have written books on the afterlife. Why should we listen to Jesus? Well, here's, here's what I'm thinking. Jesus died and then rose from the dead. That's why I'm listening to him. So if your prophet or guru uh, has any thoughts, I'll listen to them if they could die and get back up from the grave and be seen and eat and talk with people after their death. I'll go with them. Until then, I'm listening to what Jesus has to say. It's because of the resurrection. So when we stand before Jesus, when we stand before God to be judged for the deeds done in the body, it's heaven and hell. And what's the difference between the two? Well, it's not, did you do more good than bad? It's, have you sinned or have you not sinned? For if we've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So if we die physically, stay with me, dead spiritually, we remain lost perpetually. And that's what the Bible teaches as hell. It's a Christless eternity. And that's not what God wants for you, because he's a good king who sought you to show you kindness. That's Christmas. Christmas is God intruding into the world to show kindness, his his coming to this world in human likeness so that we would not experience danger, but so he could show kindness to us. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. He said, Christmas is not a reminder. The world is really quite a nice old place. That might be how Dean Martin sings it. Um, Frank says, oh, it's a holly, wonderful place. No, no, it's not a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place where wickedness flourishes unchecked, where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money selling weapons to uncivilized ones so they can blow each other apart. Christmas is God lighting a candle, and you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of sunlight. You light a candle in a room that's so murky that the candle when lit, reveals just how bad things really are. That's why the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot ever overcome it. Christmas is a rescue mission. Christmas is radical and messy and bloody. It's God's way of saving us from a life that's lost and an eternity full of of, of nothing but agony. The kindness of a king, that's Christmas who would come to us to show us kindness. Here's Mephibosheth on the ground, lame and unable to walk. 
And he's lying there before the king. He prostrates himself and says, I can do nothing. I deserve nothing. Who am I? Expecting at any moment to be executed. But the king says to him, don't be afraid. I want to show you kindness because I made a promise to your dad. What do we have now? We have a covenant that's being introduced. And there's a third party. So I'm going to show you kindness, Mephibosheth, not because you deserve it, but because of my covenant with someone else. You're going to be treated as a son. And that brings us to the final point. The reason you and I are like Mephibosheth is because he was given a seat at the royal table. David says, you're not going to be executed. No, I came here to bless. I came here to adopt you. In fact, for the rest of your life, Mephibosheth, I want you to live in Jerusalem if you're willing. We'll make space for you here at the palace. Bro, you could have your old room back if you want. We could look up Alfred. Maybe he's still floating around here somewhere, right? And, and, and from now on, here at my table, I decree this to be Mephibosheth's seat. Let's put his name on it. And every time food is served, I'll sit here. My sons and daughter here. The room will be filled here. But this is your, feet, your seat, Mephibosheth. And they help him. They escort him. And it was obviously rather unceremonious how he would move about with his lame legs. There wasn't ADA laws. There wasn't wheelchairs. There wasn't ramps and elevators, so he has to kind of get grabbed by the elbow, or maybe he had some Forrest Gump brackets on, but he somehow manages to get to the table, and then the, the chair is pushed in, and the napkin is placed upon his lap, and now he looks around, and he realizes, I have a place where I belong. I have people who want me here. There's a good king smiling at me, there to ask me how my day was, who loved my dad and so is showing love and kindness to me. And he who lived in Lodabar, a place that means no pasture, the animals had nothing to eat. This place was so remote, Luke Skywalker wouldn't even consider going there, right? And, and yet he's here now in Jerusalem, in the capital city, sitting at the table with people around him to share the stories of how his day's going and food that's lavishly prepared for him and the opportunity after the tables have, have, has been cleared, and the coffee and the pie is being served to tell funny stories and inside jokes and laugh until your belly hurts and you're crying. Just the best parts of life all happening around the table. Good food, real relationships, rich life. That's Christmas. God wanting you to have that with him and his people and Christmas shows the extreme lengths that he'll go to in order to have it. What did it take? Look at it on the screen. To get us to the Christmas table, it took God's own son being willing to come and be born in a stable. That's Christmas. Jesus being born in a barn. That's Christmas. Jesus being surrounded by filth. That's Christmas. God's son being, being born into a world surrounded by animals, but living a life where he was doubted and ridiculed and mocked and hated, dying surrounded by criminals on the cross on the third day, rising and ascending to heaven, sending his spirit in the world to seek you out, to find you in Lodabar, to invite you to the city, not because he's mad at you, but because he wants to bless you, wants to prosper for you, has good plans for you, and wants to be your father, wants you to be his son, wants you to be his daughter, but I don't deserve it. That's the point. It's for Jesus' sake. David blessed Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. God wants to bless you for Jesus' sake, and he wants to adopt you into his family, and he wants you to feast at the royal table. Strike up the music. Serve the food. Pour the wine. Let the party continue. 
That's Christmas. And you know the coolest part of all? Mephibosheth realized maybe somewhere after this, the second course, wait a minute. I've felt like an outcast my whole life because of my lame legs. But no one can see them when I'm seated at the table. When I'm at the table, I'm just like everybody else. I'm just one of the king's sons. I've been an enemy of the state all my life since I was five when my life shattered in front of my eyes and dissolved into thin air. But now I'm sitting here next to Absalom. Absalom, who from the top of his head to the sole of his feet, there was not a better looking man anywhere in the kingdom. Absalom, who had such beautiful hair that he probably sat at the dinner table combing it with a fork like Ariel. He's so vain, he probably thinks about the songs about him. Absalom, Absalom, that's Absalom. Can I take a selfie with you? Sure, bro, let's take a selfie. It's freaking King David. Tell us about when you killed Goliath. OMG. And his condition was hidden by his position at the table. What I'm saying is that your history doesn't have to determine your destiny. I came to church to tell somebody this could be your last day in Lodabar. Jesus wants you at his table with his people, with purpose and hope and passion and the light of Christ burning in your eyes. So how do you get there? Two ways. Don't miss them. Two ways to get there. Be humble and sit down. Thank you, Kendrick. Be humble and sit down. You got to be humble. What does that mean? You got to quit pretending like you've earned it. Religion is so jacked up because it makes us feel like we could puff our chest up about how many of God's Ten Commandments we kept. Do you know how many people are going to be in heaven by their own steam? Zero. Only people in heaven are going to be there because Jesus, for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake. If you insist on going your own way, earning your own keep, you will perish and have no one to blame but yourself. The only way we can get to heaven is trusting Jesus Christ and being humbled. Basically, pulling a card from Mephibosheth's playbook, I'm a dead dog, and I'm your servant. We don't talk like that anymore. That's just his way of saying, who am I that you would show such kindness to me? Be humble. What was the second part? I forgot. Think. Sit down. You got to be willing to take a seat. What does that mean? You have to accept the invitation. Mephibosheth could have felt so bad about all this that he just went back to Lodabar. But he had to choose to keep sitting down. Take a seat, sit down, accept these promises. This is all just New Testament doctrine I'm teaching you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 puts it all this way. This is the Christmas story. This is 2 Samuel 9. But we were dead in sins and trespasses. Look at it. That's, that sucks, by the way. But God. Go back. Dead in sins and trespasses. But God. Dead in sins and trespasses. But God. The gospel isn't about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people coming to life. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we choose to sit down in Christ and to, to, to take the promises and appropriate and accept his invitation to the royal table, we get seated in heavenly places even while we're still here on this earth. What that means is our name gets put on a table setting. 
There's a place prepared for you in heaven that God wants you to spend in heaven until heaven comes down and the kingdom is once again on this earth. And while you live here, here and now, he wants you to live with hope and peace and purpose as an ambassador, inviting more people, inviting more people. You get to be a part of the committee that goes to Lodabar to find the next Mephibosheth. Once you're in the, the family, you then have the right as a son or daughter to extend invitations to others. Jesus put it this way. This is Luke 22. He said, as surely as my father has given me my kingdom, so I give you the right to eat and drink at my table in that kingdom. And once we are sons and daughters of the house, we, how many of you know, we can invite our friends over to the family table for dinner as well. So this table has leaves that can be added. And our church, our whole desire is to keep adding on leaves. Why 39 worship experiences for Christmas? We want to add more leaves to the table. Why would we open up in Wyoming? Why did we go to Utah? Why have we expanded all across Montana? Here's why. Here's why we're in Portland, Oregon. We want to add leaves to the table. We want to pull up more seats. We want to create more space. We want the whole world to know how great it is to experience the grace of our great God. This is Christmas. And so my question to you is, have you accepted God's gracious invitation? Have you chosen to be humble so you can sit down? If not, right now is your opportunity to do that. And I believe God's spirit is working in many hearts to that end. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your graciousness we thank you for what we've just read and how we see Jesus in this story of David and Mephibosheth. And we're grateful there's a new covenant, a new covenant of grace, a new covenant of love, where anybody who will may come and take the water of life freely. Thank you for your spirit working in the hearts of those who are hearing this message right now who cannot be saved except your spirit moves because dead people can't rise without the power of God. But if you're here in this moment and you'd like to trust Jesus for salvation so you can live with hope and die with peace, I'm going to give you an invitation to do that right now. Here's how it's going to work. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up. But first, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer out loud with me, believing it in your heart, expressing it with your lips, because the Bible says if you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. So I'm going to pray a prayer, a little piece at a time, and I'm going to ask you to pray it out loud with me. And I'm going to ask the whole church family to pray it with us as our way of saying, we welcome you into the family with arms wide open, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how dirty you feel. This is your day. This is your time. God loves you. Old, young, rich, poor, tall, short. God loves you. He knows your name, and he wants to put it on a place setting in heaven. Don't miss this moment. Pray with us right now. Say this. Say, dear God. I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself, but I believe you can. I believe Jesus died for me, rose from the dead. I give you my heart. Forgive me. Make me new. I give my life to you. Wow, what an incredible message. Thank you so much for joining us for this teaching from Fresh Life Church. And if during the message you felt led to make a decision to follow Christ, congratulations. We would love to send you a 21-day devotional through the book of John written by Pastor Levi. And to receive that, you can text Fresh Life to 99000 or you can click the No God button on our website and we would love to connect with you. If you've been impacted by what God is doing through Fresh Life Church, we would love to hear about it. 
You can click the Share Your Story tab on our website or email us at story at freshlife.church and share how God is using the work to impact you. This is so encouraging both to our staff and to our church family. Finally, if you'd like to partner with us financially and support all that God is doing in and through the house, you can text FRESH to 45777. You can click give at freshlife.church or you can give via the Fresh Life app. Thank you so much for watching.